I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Ashley Smart, who is Associate Director at the Knight Science Journalism Initiative at MIT and Senior Editor of Undark Magazine. Welcome, Ashley. Thanks, Alexander. It's good to be here. For the past many months, you've been working diligently on a project that explores science's long, often troubled relationship with race, It is called Long Division, The Persistence of Race Science. Uh, Ashley, can you tell me what motivated the launch of this project? Yeah, so this project, uh, the origins date back to the spring of 2022. And at that time, um, the country, America, was really still kind of in the midst of a deep reckoning over race. And Deborah Blum, who's the director of KSJ, the Night Science Journalism Program, and also the publisher of Undark, um, approached me and we began to talk about how amidst this kind of nationwide reckoning over race, there was really very little that was being said about the role that science has, has played, both in perpetuating ideas of race um, and also how those ideas of race have influenced the way we do science. Um, There's a long history dating back several centuries, right, that kind of ties these two ideas together. And we felt that at the time, no one had really kind of explored it as part of this reckoning. So we set out to do that. Um, One of the things that we did was we reached out to uh, Harvard science historian Evelyn Hammonds, who was really instrumental in getting this project off the ground. We brought together science historians and, and ethicists with journalists to think about which stories would be most important for us to try to tell. And we set out at at Underact Magazine to to put together a package of stories that would really grapple with these questions, uh, difficult questions the science still continues to face today. The opening prompt on Undark, if you go to race.undark.org, is science built up the idea of race. Can it ever be torn down? When you say, and you and your colleagues have say that, do you mean the idea that there were biological differences according to race um, and that that coexisted for a period with some of the enlightenment thinking um, that has gradually been debunked? Um, is that what the initial idea of when you say science built up the idea of race, what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is more or less um, kind of the idea. So so one thing we have to be careful about when we talk about race is, is to define what we mean, right? And race, um, you know, has lots of different connotations. It has legal connotations and social connotations and cultural connotations. What we were especially interested in for this project was the idea of biological race. And that is the idea that humanity can be divided into, you know, a handful of groups based on geographic ancestry. And that these groups, these categories have some biological meaning. And and that idea of biological race, as you pointed out, dates back to the Enlightenment era, to, seven, to thinkers of the 1700s, 
like Carl Linnaeus and Immanuel Kant, and um, you know the list goes on. Um, Buffon, uh, Friedrich Blumenbach, who are all kind of coming up with these ideas of of parceling humanity into you know a handful of categories and kind of speculating that these these categories had real biological meaning. And it was actually in this era, and it was from these thinkers that we got the term race as, as we use it today. Um, and so the concept of race predated this era, I wanna be clear. So even dating back to the 1600s, you had legal, you know, uh, you had legal constructs that had basically, um, you know, defined uh, people from Africa as, you know, being second class uh, humans basically in, in the new world. Um, you had the, the black codes and you had uh, codes in Virginia that basically codified chattel slavery. But it was really in the 1700s that we saw this idea of, of race as kind of a natural order of things emerge. And that was largely due to the naturalists of, of the Enlightenment era. And how do you think the history has evolved parallel to sex and gender because of the question of biological difference between men and women um, and the question of how you might consider you know various medical issues for um, one gender versus another gender I mean the the at a, do you feel like the project at all has any implications for that question too of the original conception of, you know, the biology of men and women and how we think about that now versus how we thought about that three centuries ago. Yeah, I mean, I think one important parallel that that comes with most attempts to classify uh, humanity into kind of strict categories is that the boundaries are often fluid. And we see that, especially in the case of biological race, that that there's no um, there's no race gene. There's there's kind of there's no geographical boundaries that that this kind of these kind of biological categories adhere to. Um, when I think about uh, human difference and human genetic variation, uh, I think for one that it's it's small. Uh, when when you look at our genomes, we're more than ninety nine percent identical, all of us. Uh, but it's also statistical. Right, so scientists can compare genomes and maybe find differences in group averages of the patterns that they see, but there there are no clear and definitive bounds that separate these groups that scientists have constructed. And in the end, in the case of 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 race or kind of the notions of biological race, um, these these differences, these this human genetic variation, is swamped often by environmental factors. So, so the genetic factors that make us different, different are often much smaller and, and less influential than kind of the environmental factors that shape who we become. You think that the environmental factors that have made uh, Black Americans more susceptible to um, malnutrition and illness as a result of um, underserved communities um, 
um, uh, where there, there is not uh, the same level of guarantee of life, liberty, and happiness, contamination of lead and, and pipes. Um, do you, do you, do you explain the, the, the difference in, in propensity for uh, illness um, through um, envi environmental factors entirely, or um, when it comes to the disproportionate cases of, of certain kinds of cancer in the Black community, um, that, that, that there is also any kind of um, me medical explanation beyond the um, the environmental factors is is um, yeah. yeah are kind of are are those is it one or the other or those two factors maybe both at play right I wonder how that how that complicates this this undoing yeah. of the biological race narrative when you look at um, a number of of diseases just from the American, from the U.S. perspective and see that, is this a result of circumstance um, or is there both nature and nurture that is contributing right. to disproportionate health outcomes in Black communities? Right. So I want, I want to qualify what, what I'm going to say by, by clarifying that I'm a journalist. <laughs> and so I see my job is to, to ask the experts the questions and to try to tell the story um, that I get from them. Um, so I'm sure that you could speak to sociologists and historians and ethicists who could give you a more kind of definite answer. But from from the experts that I've that I've talked to, uh, one uh, I think I think they tend to see it as both nature and nurture um, that uh, heredity and genetics do often play a part in you know. Um, the health conditions and kind of health risk and health traits that we see, but that the environment, environmental factors, and even things like discrimination and societal factor, factors also play a huge part. And to give you an example, um, researchers now using what are known as genome-wide association studies uh, are starting to be able to quantify the effect of specific genes on specific traits and specific health outcomes that we see. And when they look at things like cancers and risk for coronary artery disease or cardiovascular diseases, the genetics that they've been able to uncover thus far tend to explain in the range of 10 to 20% of the outcomes that they see. Um, and so that leaves open a vast majority, which is likely due to environmental environmental factors and other kind of unknown factors. When we look at a trait like BMI, body mass index, I think there it's it's closer to 5% that's explained by the genetics that we know of so far. And so I think I think the current understanding is that yes, genetics plays a part, but that environment often plays a much larger part. And then there's another question when we're talking about racial disparities, right, in health outcomes. And I think it's an important point to make that at this point, it's very difficult for scientists to kind of compare uh, the impacts and influence of genetics across races. 
And the reasons are somewhat technical. We get we get into them in our race project stories, but it's very difficult to kind of make those comparisons and say one race is more genetically predisposed to a condition or outcome than another, just because of the limitations of, of the tools that they have to use. Let me ask you, Ashley, about eugenics. Um, there are institutions like standardized testing that um, prolong the 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 attitudes of the eugenesis of that earlier age but but are you concerned at all by like a new wave of eugenics thinking around you know the society and in in the in the public domain i i think there are kind of elements of of modern applications of genetics that do kind of raise the specter of eugenics so, for instance, um, there are companies now that will do uh, screening of embryos, pre pre-implantation embryos for IVF patients. So, if you think of uh, prospective parents who are undergoing IVF, and they have, uh, they are trying to decide which embryos they would like to implant to begin a pregnancy. Uh, there are companies that will genetically screen those embryos on a number of factors. In fact, there was one company that briefly uh, advertised that they were screening for uh, based on um, educational attainment outcomes uh, in order to determine, you know, to help parents decide which which uh, embryos they'd like to carry to pregnancy. And there are voices, um, you know, that that are calling for more of that, or for kind of wider spread genetic screening and also kind of genetic choice of uh, when it comes to fertility or reproduction. And I think that raises the, the specter of eugenics. I'm not sure if it's if it kind of crosses the the line that most ethicists would would draw and 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 actually call it eugenics, but it's 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 inching toward that line, I think. Um, and and you see hints of that. But I think you also see often forceful repudiations of that that line of thinking as well, and I'm encouraged by that. Um, I'm encouraged that you see a lot of ethicists um, and science science historians getting involved with conversations in conversations with genetics researchers to talk about the ethical and legal and social implications of the work they're doing. Um, and and so yeah, so that's encouraging to me. How would you evaluate the progress we've made since, I, I think, a rather transformational moment in American society, um, which was the murder of George Floyd and the reexamination of issues of race and the the the, the recognition of the uh, that that the betterment of of society had not been complete that there had been and that there are communities alien to 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 progress and that have been denied um the realization of of life liberty and happiness in your specific discipline of science journalism how relevant was what transpired in 2022 the practice of of journalism today and specifically science journalism um, in, you know, informing communities and hopefully advancing the the quality of not just discourse, but life in those communities. Yeah, I mean, I think that entire reckoning over race has been 
extremely important in the realm of science journalism, in part because it's made, I think, all of us more attuned to the social inequities we see, the disparities we see, um, uh, both on a public health front, right? Um, you can think of, you know, uh, the the entire George Floyd situation has kind of elapsed in various layers of public health, um, but also on other fronts, right? If, when it comes to environmental justice, I think we've been more, we've become more attuned to environmental injustices uh, that plague certain communities. Certainly the COVID pandemic um, helped to make us more attuned to that. Um, and, and so, yeah, and I think it all speaks to the idea, which I, I think is an important one, is that science, science does not exist in a bubble kind of separate from all of these other aspects of society, right? It intersects with, with sociology and it intersects with education and it intersects with health and all of these other elements. Um, and I think, you know, the, through this entire reckoning, I think we've come to see that much more clearly. And what do you think is the new frontier um, when you and your colleagues at MIT are thinking about undertaking new science journalism initiatives and projects? Um, you know, what what is unexplored in in the pursuit of fact that that uh, will help um, you know help scientists navigate further into this next generation? Is is the focus? mostly on on ethics because of of um the issues that we've seen that our two-time guest joy bulamwini has exposed in the proclivity of those deploying technologies to to do so in a biased way uh or is there a function of science journalism that is trying to facilitate learnings among scientists so that ideas can cross-pollinate, or is it a combination? Um, I, I, I do imagine that the, that the issue of ethics in scientific practice and technological innovation must be, if not your top priority, one of your top priorities. Yeah, definitely. And first, shout out to Joy Bullum. She's my neighbor, actually, here in Cambridge. Um, she does terrific yes. work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, we're Ethics is definitely um, an area where here at KSJ, where we're paying a lot of attention. We're working right now, as a matter of fact, to put together a series on ethics and, and science journalism. Um, but really, we're, we're thinking about a lot of different things. We're thinking about uh, misinformation and, and how you know, we can best res respond to this kind of infodemic or epidemic of misinformation that we're facing with things like better fact-checking and different ways of storytelling. Um, we're thinking about how to make the field of science journalism more inclusive. Um, there was a recent Pew poll uh, that came out a few months ago and looked at the demographics within, within journalism writ large. And science journalism was one of the, the least diverse and representative beats in journalism, I think um, uh, in science reporting, I, I think uh, the the poll found that fewer that only three percent of science journalists identify as black, whereas black people make up nearly fourteen percent of the population. 
I think only 2% of environmental and energy journalists identify as Black. And so we're thinking about ways to address that. Um, and we're also, you know, um, at the same time, kind of reinforcing, you know, the, the, the journalism 101 principles of doing good, trustworthy reporting and, and telling good, important stories. Yeah, the, I did ask you about about eugenics um, and the, I hate to say it, but there does seem to be among the higher tech, if you want to call them innovators, um, you know, there, there, there is some kind of cross pollination between the, the, um, the anti-vax community and sort of the the some of the modern eugenicists. I mean, I I, I think that I see that as a as a real threat that the that you know the high tech um, entrepreneurs are um, you know thinking in ways that that are obsolete. Do you have that fear too? I think, um, you know, just from my experience as a journalist, when I think about people, entities who are kind of bringing into the world and really pushing new technology, one of my big concerns that I see is that often there's a tendency to act now and think about the consequences later, right? Let's push this out there make it big and we'll worry about the societal implications later. And I think that's something that, you know, as personally as a reporter that I've kind of been attuned to and that has guided some of my reporting, you know, basically saying, no, let's think about this now. Let's think about this first <laughs> um, before we introduce it into the world and can no longer control it. And that kind of harkens back, not just to like the eugenic eugenicist thinking that you're that you mentioned, um, uh, I think you fairly mentioned, but also you know technologies like AI and a lot of the work that we're seeing in genetics. Um, and so I think it's I think it's a journalist's job in some respects to kind of uh, you know to be a, a, you know uh, an accountability source in that way and kind of and kind of call people's attention to these things and say you know let's let's think about the implications. Um, but yeah, as far as the kind of cross pollination between anti-vax and eugenicist thinking, that's that's one that I hadn't I hadn't thought. Yeah, about. no, I hear you. It's it's still bubbling. It's foaming at the and, and yeah, I'm, yeah. It, it, it may be the case. Yeah. yeah, but well, let me ask you this: in the in the few minutes we have left, an emphasis of our discussion has been environmental degradation and um, injustices that are being exposed. Um, do you find that there's enough emphasis on the correcting some of the problems and, and keeping track of those corrections? For example, in Flint, Michigan, with the lead, you know, we don't have, we're not attuned to the latest there. I mean, for all we know, it's as egregious as it was and, it, and, and it's causing, you know, cancer or their carcinogens in the water. And and I and I struggle with the fact that there's the Solutions Journalism Project, and I commend them for what they do. But that 
that idea has not been fully integrated not even fully integrated hasn't really been integrated into the day-to-day reporting you go to the new york times website you see just an amazing array of stories and i wonder if your initiative at mit might help in tracking the uh reporting that exposes environmental crimes or uh, where where science goes wrong in effect and then keep you know ensuring that the solution is is one that's sustained and and that the environmental threat to a community like flint is not going to pop up again in five years Uh, and that's just one example but you know there's so many examples you could use are we doing enough to kind of follow up on on these stories and stick with right right yeah right yeah probably not you know i'm I'm sure we could be doing more um my my wife is actually from flint and so we're often spending time there and I I know just from talking with my in-laws that still to this day, um, you know, there's still kind of the scars of of the Flint water crisis and still, you know, very much a distress uh, uh, from a lot of the residents in that city. And there are probably stories that we should be continuing to tell, uh, to follow up on. Um, but but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging question when the news cycle is moving so quickly. And when, you know, as sad as it is to say it, when kind of new environmental injustices are popping up at every turn, you know, how do we keep our eyes on all of those balls at once? That's Um, true. And you're making sure that AI doesn't create new environmental hazards. Uh, We know, you know, they're artificially created medicines now using chemicals that, that we don't know the effect that they'll have years from now. Um, We're just about to close, but I would direct all of our listeners and viewers to check out Ashley Smart's work and and his colleagues' work at Undark at the MIT uh, Science Initiative, um, the Night Science Program there. Ashley Smart, thank you for the compelling work on the, the project you've done at Undark, and we continue to follow it here. Thank you, Alexander, for having me. It was a pleasure. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at OpenMindTV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.